This panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference hosted at Queen's University from the 29th of February to the 1st of March, 2020. Welcome to day two. Um, I'm Carmel Michael, and I'm um, super happy to be the moderator today. I'm also your sponsor. Um, I produce Hyacinth Podcast, which is um, a podcast that merges scholarly research and artistic practice. So it's all about trying to reach beyond the academy with academic work, basically, and to think about ways that we can kind of intervene in traditional scholarly methods and also in like dissemination methods. So I'm super excited to have the three of you guys here talking about projects that kind of work across the boundaries of the academy. Um, we're talking about the boundaries of scholarly communication, engaging audiences in and out of the academy. And today we're going to have Madison Danford, PhD in kinesiology. Um, at U of T, she studied gender relations in ice hockey officiating and created a podcast series with newcomer youth. That sounds super cool. Um, Al-Zahara Majed is also a PhD student in kinesiology, holds a Master's of Public Health from the American University in Beirut and a Master's of Science from Purdue, and she is interested in studying um, physical and mental health outcomes for newcomers. Welcome. And Anthony Lomax, you guys all know because you talk a lot at all these events. <laughs> a second year PhD student in cultural studies. Their current research focuses on the ethics of relationality between plants and humans in musical counters, which sounds very fascinating to me. So let's get started. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming. Um, today, I'm going to be talking uh, about the podcast series that I helped co-produce through a youth participatory action research project at the University of Toronto uh, when I was there doing my master's. I'm still a part of the project, um, even though I'm a Queen student now. Uh, I have to give acknowledge to the other researchers on this project because it wasn't just me. So first off, um, there's Dr. Simon Darnell, uh, who was the lead researcher for the project at U of T. Robin Smith, who is now a current PhD student at uh, uh, Brunel University in the UK. And then our co-researchers, um, who are the voices, the backbone, Everything about this project came from them. Um, so that's Maria, Lael, Nat, and Tiva. They are all newcomers um, who migrated to Canada, specifically Toronto, within the last three years. Uh, so this project, we couldn't have done it without them. Um, so let me continue. So uh, for this project, some things you can expect is just an overview of the overall research project. It's a pretty big project, so I'll just give a little uh, overview of it. Some of the nuts and bolts of what YPAR is, so that's Youth Participatory Action Research. I will refer it to as YPAR because that's super lengthy. Um, I'll talk about the podcasting process, some of the knowledge translation and varying implications, uh, and then some key takeaways that we've learned and we're still trying to figure out. So the overall project, uh, it was a large multi-stakeholder uh, project at the University of Toronto. We have funding for five years. When we produced the podcast, we were in year three. Uh, it engages the University of Toronto, the Kinesiology and Physical Education Department, um, Hard House, which is a co-curricular center on campus, and then multiple youth community groups uh, throughout the city. So it was 519, uh, Wellesley Community Center, St. Albans Boys and Girls Club, Native Child 
Native Child and Family Services, and then uh, Culture Links Element Service Agency, which are the youth that I worked with came from. Uh, the main point of the project was us to try to really understand what role does sport mean in the lives of youth in Toronto and their social development, uh, being de that determined on their own terms. So we did not want to set a definition of what any of that meant. We wanted the youth to really understand and try to figure out what that meant for themselves instead of us researchers putting a lengthy definition to something that might not mean a whole pile to them. Uh, throughout the project, the varying groups, uh, community groups, had different researchers working with them. Uh, so there was focus groups, there was uh, self-interview, some narrative pieces. Uh, the group that I worked with did the podcast series, and there was an art exhibition. So that's just a little bit about the project. Specifically, some nuts and bolts about, about YPAR. Um, so it privileges a co-production of knowledge with young people throughout the research process and emphasizes their agency to facilitate social change. So the young people progress from being participants who are typically researched on to being the authors of their own stories. So with the context of YPAR being in line with the capacities and interests of the co-researchers, the young people become involved in some or all of the stages of the co-production of knowledge and research and understanding. Uh, from research des design to dissemination, um, and they're all supported by experienced researchers. Uh, so these studies typically engage youth throughout the design and impl implementation of the study, as opposed to more traditional pre and post evaluations uh, that put a lot of the narrative from the researchers' background onto the uh, participants. Uh, it is a distinct approach in social science research because it's participant-driven, it's more democratic than traditional research, uh, given the attempt for a non-hierarchical, I have a really hard time with that word, uh, research between, a relationship between the research and the participants, and it's collaborative at every stage, and the outcome is so it's designed to result in some form of action or change um, or improvement. So just some basics of YPAR. Next up is the podcast process. So this um, was a really cool, really interesting process. If you get sick of listening to me, um, which I promise you, you will, there is the RQ codes here. Uh, you can just, if you have a smartphone, you can just point your camera at them. One is for iTunes, one is for SoundCloud for the podcast series. Um, I'll also show some of the uh, little clips of the podcast throughout the rest of the presentation, um, which is really important for me because my positionality as a researcher on this project, with it being youth participatory action research, the youth not being here, it's really important for me to share their voices and their stories, um, just to try to level that playing ground a little bit. So just to take you back to the beginning of the project, um, it all started when Robin Smith uh, was doing some volunteer work at CultureLink, and uh, for a larger part of this project, she connected with some of these youth and had a focus group and asked them if they wanted to join on as paid co-researchers um, with the project. So we had four that I mentioned earlier. They joined on as employees by the University of Toronto as co-researchers, which was really cool for them uh, to be recognized as a researcher, just like everyone else on the project. Uh, and we started to talk about what kind of things they wanted to do for this project and what really mattered to them. Um, and throughout all these conversations, their main point that they wanted to try to figure out was mental health and well-being for newcomer youth. 
they didn't realize that through conversation and talking with each other that they were all struggling um, with moving here and not knowing anyone, not having friends, uh, leaving their whole lives and their home countries behind. They really struggled with their own mental health, but they didn't know that other people were struggling. So as we came to this point through conversation, uh, they're like, what if we did a project around what sport and physical activity means for us, newcomer youth, um, in our mental health? So does it help, does it hinder, all of these things. Um, so then we got talking about methods. We held uh, workshops for about three months, uh, once a week, on trying to figure out uh, different types of research and methods. We talked about ethics. Uh, we had uh, sessions on creating a interview guide, interviewing. We talked about blogging and photo voice. Um, so we were really trying to figure out what they wanted to do as this project. And it really became clear that they did not want to write a research paper. And that they know that the, the, the content is valuable, but their friends and their peers wouldn't be able to access it. It wouldn't be tangible for them um, for the various reasons of being English and being within the academy and having access, all of these things. Uh, so then Robin and I had a chance meeting with the uh, technology department at Hart House at the University of Toronto, where we got to connect with the uh, podcast team at Hart House. Um, we went back to the, the co-researchers, talked to them about podcasts, and that's when we kind of started talking a little bit more. And as I have on my slide, uh, one of the co-researchers said, like, what even is a podcast? And this was a lot of their first time ever hearing of this. So they had lots of um, concerns about podcasting. Uh, they had so many questions and things that they just wanted answered before really committing to the amount of work in creating a podcast series. Um, they were worried about uh, the reach that it would have if people actually listened to podcasts as being young people, do people actually listen? Uh, they were concerned about the amount of work and training that goes into it. They thought it they sound daunting when you first listen to a podcast and it's all the editing and how do you actually put it on a platform and all of these questions. So we created a great big long document, went back to the podcast team, um, had them meet, we talked about the problems. Uh, the podcast team was great and they expressed all of the questions that we had and talked to us about knowledge translation and how tangible it actually is and that they can be recorded on your phone and you don't need the fancy microphones and all of these things. But what really led us to the podcast development was the relationship that built um, with the Hart House podcasting team. So they were a group of individuals whose main purpose was to share social justice um, issues through podcasting. But really, um, they were representative of the newcomer youth, which was something that I couldn't offer as being a white um, Canadian. I didn't have that connectability piece where a lot of the people on the podcast team did. Um, so ultimately what led us to the podcasting was the relationships that was built between the groups, um, which was really cool and really awesome to see between such a big multi-stakeholder project, um, that relationship building having such a key part. Uh, so throughout the entire process, the podcast team, we met weekly. We uh, learned how to edit, we learned how to record, we learned how to make an interview uh, guide. Um, talked about how to talk with other people and how to communicate and all of those great things that we learn in a qualitative methods class, but in, this was delivered in a way that was a little bit more tangible than the traditional research.
process. Uh, so the co-researchers decided that they wanted to do a self-interview and talk about their own journey. Um, so they each made their own episode, and then they went out and interviewed two to three of their friends and family about their journey and their experience, uh, which created seven episodes for our series. At the end of June, we held a listen launch party, which really showcased uh, all of the work that went into the podcast that the co-researchers did. Um, we invited the community, we invited their friends and their families, we listened to the podcast, we ate food, we had the co-researchers stand in front of a group of people and talk about the experience. Um, yeah, it was just, it was really cool. So now I just want to show a clip. I'm sorry if it's not super loud, um, but you can listen to them all on your own time. Oh, is it working? To the sport and social development participant action. In this series, we will be speaking with newcomer youth, answering the question, what role does sport and physical activity play on the life of a newcomer youth's mental well-being? So that's just our intro. It was cool to um, really learn for myself as well, like how all of this worked. And it's such a neat skill and it actually is very tangible for people to learn and do. And yeah, so it was a really neat process. So that's just the intro. I'll show a little bit more in a minute. So now, um, knowledge translation. So for the co-researchers, um, much anxiety stemmed from their perceived difficulty in commanding the English language. And their sense of their accents would make them uh, and their stories more difficult for audiences to understand. So this was really something that we had to figure out uh, and work through. And this is where the relationship with the Hard House podcasting team really came through, um, as a lot of them have accents and kind of feel the same struggle, whereas, again, something I couldn't fully connect and understand and be a part of. So that relationship was really helpful in this process. Um, this, is, this discomfort was one of uh, one that the co-researchers expressed through the entirety of the process. The podcasting process was, what if they can't understand me? No one will listen to me because they won't be able to understand me. Um, so it's something that we really constantly had to work through. Um, in many ways, this language and accents are constructed uh, through the act of othering, um, which occurs and really puts an emphasis on the racialized power of the English language and is something that we did our best to try to work through, which was a process. And I think, as scholars, I think it's something that we're still trying to struggle and work through. Um, in response, as a way to lend support, the podcast team shared examples of podcasts that incorporate multiple languages and offered suggestions on how to use this as an asset in their podcasts. So in turn, the co-researchers decided to incorporate their ref uh, represented languages, first languages, into the introductions of the podcast that I just showed. So they said hello in their own languages. Um, and at the end, they kind of said goodbye in a little bit of their own languages again. And um, as I'm going to show in a minute, it was important for them to give advice in their own language as something that they could uh, reflect on and just show a little bit more of themselves opposed to just completely submitting to the English language. Um, I think for me it's really big and the rest of the researchers on this team is that we are conscious of the role of globalization and its role on digital methods. Uh, the creation of podcasts is inaccessible to many within the global south and 
that's the home countries of many of the co-researchers and migrant communities. So this is due to the availability of digital technology coupled with the dominant use of English language. So again, the podcasts were recorded in English despite being produced by co-researchers with English as their second language. So that's a big takeaway for me is the power of the English language. Um, so it's something we're still trying to navigate and work through. If we were to do it again, we would probably do it differently, but I feel like that's a lot of research projects. Um, next up is the high emphasis of having an authentic story. Um, so this became pretty much number one for the co-researchers was they wanted to have impact and make the podcast meaningful. Uh, the co-researchers were challenged in ensuring that the stories that they were hearing from their friends and their family um, maintained authentic and we weren't modifying it so much. Uh, with podcasts, the priority is a listenership. So you're kind of always thinking about the end and who's actually listening to your podcasts um, and what's going to sound best and more appealing um, for the audience. We, we struggled with this a little bit because we really wanted to make sure that the stories were maintaining um, their authenticity, but also that the listener could follow and understand and be a part of it as well. Um, so we, this was a relationship and kind of a, a difficulty where we sometimes butt heads with the podcasting team because they really wanted the listenership in mind, whereas we wanted the authentic stories. So trying to edit not so much that uh, it didn't become the person's story anymore. Um, so. So that was difficult, and I'm going to show just a little clip here of how we think we maintained that with not editing it to the point that it um, was super crystal clear and every word was correct. We kind of maintained some, some mix-ups and, and to show that it wasn't uh, super polished, I guess. So in some podcasts you might listen to, they're super polished and all of those ums and ahs would be taken out and some words, if they mess up a word, that would be changed or edited or you would ask them to say it again. Uh, we, didn't want to, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to keep these stories um, as the person's stories. Uh, a significant experience in this editing process was the emergent feelings of responsibility for the people's stories. So, they're telling us something super vulnerable about themselves and their mental health and their, um, 
kind of their migration story and the co-researchers didn't want to alter that and they felt a lot of responsibility in not changing their story and really giving as much voice and authenticity to the participants um, which was interesting when working with podcasts because you're trying to also cater to the listeners uh, so that's something that we had to work through and I think we did it okay we're still trying to work that through but it's it's an interesting concept and something that we didn't really know we would come up throughout this project uh, and then lastly was the connectivity to other newcomer youth to Canada. So this was um, speaking about their personal experiences with mental health and being a newcomer youth. So after speaking with the youth, um, other youth, all the co-researchers reflected on how they thought that they were alone in this process and thought that they were the only ones struggling with their mental health and not knowing that other people had these feelings. Um, so after speaking with others and sharing these stories, they learned that they weren't alone and hoped that other newcomer youth would listen to the podcast um, and know that they aren't alone either and that there's other resources for them and that there's a whole community like them that they, they can connect with. And even if that's not going out and speaking to um, anyone about it, but you can listen to a podcast and feel that you're not alone, um, was this aspect of connectivity. So even if they didn't know that people were listening, it was still that hope that others could connect and listen and learn and just realize ultimately that these feelings are out there and that other newcomer youth are feeling these feelings. Um, that's the aim, that's what they wanted was this impact. Um, so these conversations around um, how their mental health affected them really uh, led to other conversations and just ultimately understanding that they aren't alone in this process. Um, so a message that really, oh, sorry. So I'm gonna show a clip now of Maria's self-interview and throughout this process, we wanted to, uh, for themselves to give themselves some advice. If they were first coming to Canada, it's something that they wish they would have known when they first moved here. Uh, so they all say it in their um, native, their first languages and then they, translated to English for us um, and they really wanted to incorporate this piece to show that they weren't alone and that other people probably have these feelings too. Um, if I had the opportunity to meet myself back then when I arrived in Toronto, this, this is the advice I, I would give. I would say it in my native language first. Persevera, persevera las dificultades y obstáculos porque eventualmente todo lo malo pasará. Uh, which it translates into you have to persevere despite any difficulty or obstacle because eventually everything that you're going through will go away. So that became pretty cool. We had some newcomer or other listeners who heard the podcast uh, reach out to us and uh, talked about these feelings and they, they thanked Maria for putting that in there. And, and so that was cool. Um, having that other narrative piece outside of the podcast was having other people reach out to the co-researchers and having that uh, little bit of a dialogue was pretty cool. So just a couple uh, key takeaways is PAR and why PAR is often romanticized. It's process simplified. The mess is usually removed from the journal articles um, and presentations. That's not our reality. Why PAR and PAR is messy, it's not linear, 
there's not a lot of direction. It's kind of all over the place. Um, so that's something we really wanted to be authentic and true about in any presentations and any papers that we're writing from this project was that it wasn't the six steps that are laid out in all the research project. It's way different than that. So first off, I just wanted to say that it is a messy process, um, but it's a cool process in, in the way that you kind of navigate it. Um, secondly, uh, being aware of the researcher's positionality. Um, Robin and myself are white settlers on these lands. Um, so that's something that we needed to take in consideration when working with newcomer youth uh, and understanding what they need versus what we need um, and trying to balance that as co-researchers and um, researchers. Um, understanding that there's different expectations as researchers in the room. Uh, this is our lives. This is what we do. We do research. We like research. We put ourselves into research. Uh, Co-researchers, we couldn't have that same expectations. They are teenagers in a new country, um, going back to high school so they can attend university here in Canada. Uh, they have other part-time jobs. They have friends and they have families. Like, it was a lot of uh, responsibility and a lot of burdens that I felt like we were putting onto the co-researchers to produce knowledge for us um, as the academy. So really trying to understand like that relationship and that power hierarchy uh, was something that we really needed to understand and I think is often removed when working in YPAR uh, is that expectation and that kind of messiness there. Um, challenging the colonial processes and methodologies Sometimes focus groups aren't the best method, but that's kind of what a lot of researchers always uh, resort back to. Um, so really just trying to choose the best method that's going to be best for the people that we're working with, um, which was cool in the process of learning podcasting um, and sharing voice and putting voice um, not in just like paper, but also having their voice heard, uh, which was really added a little bit different perspective. And this constant feedback loop. So being honest and admitting that you're wrong and then reevaluating. This happened all the time in our pro project and it still constantly happens is we don't know what we're doing um, and that's okay and admitting that and trying to figure out how to make it work better. Um, so there was lots of things that came up when you're working with newcomer um, people is trying to pay them and like understanding that they might not have work visas but like are we exploiting their labor now? Like all of these different things really came up uh, we're working with newcomer youth and trying to understand uh, our positionality as researchers and within the academy. Uh, so really just admitting that we don't know what we're doing, but we're trying to figure it out, which is cool, and we're still trying to figure that out for the rest of the project. Um, yeah, there's, that's our project on podcasting and newcomer youth. Thanks. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Zahra, uh, or Al Zahra, whatever suits you. Um, yeah, my project is kind of similar, not similar, but like the background and the ideas are similar to uh, Madison. Uh, and it's still at the proposal stage, so any uh, feedback is welcome. I'm sorry, you're just like. I know, what is that? Maybe if I. Sure. Okay. Okay. So. Yeah. 
So today I'll be talking about some art-based uh, arts based methods uh, among newcomers in Kingston. That's me, I'm a second year PhD student at the School of Kinesiology and I'm interested in uh, basically studying physical activity and the intersection uh, of that with uh, mental, mental health outcomes and physical health outcomes among newcomers. So who is a newcomer in, in Canada? Per basically, new a newcomer is a permanent resident, uh, a refugee, or a person who's applying for permanent residency but still needs to pass some uh, eligibility uh, requirements. Uh, that's basically uh, like medical examinations and proof of financial support and a lot of other stuff that you can find online. Uh, when I speak about newcomers, basically I'm talking about uh, specifically Syrian refugees uh, who fled their countries after the start of the civil war uh, in Syria in 2011. Uh, the Syrian refugee crisis is one of the uh, most uh, most severe international crises that have been um, happening in our recent time. Uh, the first photo basically shows uh, the like an example of some uh, migratory path that these Syrian refugees have taken uh, by flooding their country either to Europe or to uh, adjacent countries such as Turkey or Lebanon or, uh, or Egypt or uh, Jordan. Uh, other, other, than, other than that, some of them went to Europe. Um, and just a bit of them came to Canada and the US. But that didn't happen until the picture on the bottom right actually was circulating the social media where uh, a little kid just died um, on the shores of his country. Uh, I think it's in Turkey, actually. So the Canadian government response was in 2011 and 2015 to establish the Welcome Refugee Initiative. Which, and what happened is that um, Around, around 45,000 Syrian refugees actually came in just one, just one year, so that's between 2015 and 2016. And up, up until now, like up, up until January 2020, there is around 60,000 Syrian refugees uh, in Canada, resettled in Canada, which is actually way less than what the neighboring countries. Like I'm from Lebanon, and uh, I was telling yesterday Madison that uh, the Lebanese population is just about 4 million people, and we had around 1.5 million Syrian refugees residing in our country. And the same applies to Turkey and uh, Jordan. The city of Kingston, on its own, has over 400 Syrian refugees, and that's actually a big amount for such a small city. So what are some challenges that these Syrian refugees deal with? First, you have like pre-settlement factors. You have to understand that these people have suffered, uh, suffered from a war, like they experienced violence, they experienced, experienced uh, losing their loved, loved ones, they experienced grief, they experienced displacement. Uh, I, I used to work with uh, some of them uh, back in Lebanon, and I remember like little kids who can't really go to schools. They had to find jobs and, secure, and help their families in finding these jobs uh, financially. Uh, so a lot of them deal with a lot of physical health issues and mental health consequences. So these are some of the issues that we have to think about when we're dealing with such communities. And then there are some challenges that every single immigrant deal with, uh, and this has to do with like finding employment, uh, dealing with language barriers, uh, like accent, accents, like you said, uh, discrimination, social isolation, racism, all of that. So you have to add the post-settlement factors with the pre-settlement factors, 
uh, into one like one big picture when you're dealing with uh, such population. In addition to acculturation, so what's, accult what's acculturation? Basically, it's the intersection of two cultures and how they uh, interact with each other and what kind of things uh, they exchange in the process of uh, immigration. So the main objective is to examine uh, newcomers' integration to Canada through a community-based participatory approach uh, that employs an arts-based methodology. What is community-based participatory approach? It's actually quite similar to uh, what you mentioned. Uh, and it's basically, I'm not gonna read all of that, it's basically an approach that joins uh, researchers with community members together. And they all come up with some kind of a plan for their own research. Uh, it involves every single person in this uh, research process. So um, that includes me as a researcher, it includes the participants, it includes every single person helping us. And then we all come up with a certain idea or a plan that would help this community in order to make a particular change that's concerning them. Uh, it's some kind of, it integrates some kind of social action and it educates, uh, it educates other people and tries to uh, address some kind of health disparities in the community. Where is art-based methods? Basically, uh, it's a form of qualitative research. Uh, basically, we're, uh, we're using arts in order to uh, understand or examine a certain phenomena. Uh, and we're trying to go away from the conventional methods because there are some kind of uh, benefits for that. Arts-based knowledge translation, it's basically, um, basically using any form of art at any point in the research process, whether we're trying to generate, interpret, or communicate knowledge. Um, we, I don't wanna read everything. <laughs> uh, we're trying to construct new knowledge for people, we're trying to mitigate the language barrier that newcomers might have, or other like people in similar conditions might have. Uh, and we're then using that, these findings, in the process of knowledge translation in order to disseminate findings, it kind of empowers people. It gives them some kind of uh, ability to share their voices and their stories and disseminate that to the public. There are so many forms of art-based methods. So there's like theater, there's dance, there's photography, poetry, podcast, everything, whatever comes to your mind. And for my own research, uh, I haven't started with that yet. I'm, I'm gonna let you know later on where I am, but I'm interested in photography. So photo voice, it's a visual method that put camera, puts, cam, puts the camera into the participant's hand and it helps them to document, reflect upon, and communicate their issues uh, that's concerning them while stimulating social change at the same time. Uh, it can obviously uh, enhance community engagement, increase their awareness, awareness of community resources, and uh, foster self-efficacy uh, of the research partners. I feel like I'm going really fast. <laughs> uh, so my project overview. First, in my project, uh, I had to first start with establishing some kind of partnership. So I'm, I'm currently a PhD student at Queen's, but I'm also involved with Kingston Gets Active. Kingston Gets Active, I'm not sure if you've heard before about it. It's, uh, it's a coalition in Kingston that basically uh, has a lot of partners and we try to promote physical activity in the Kingston community. So we have, I think, around 15 community partners. Uh, we come up with, with, uh, with resources, we connect people with resources and, 
uh, and sites for uh, promoting physical activity. There are so many events that happen around Kingston and the area, uh, and we and I basically work with them uh, toward making that happen. So there's Kingston Gets Active, there's Queen's University, and there's Immigration Services Kingston and Area, which is part of the Kingston Community Health Center. Uh, what happened is that I went there in my capacity as a PhD student and as a, an ambassador for Kingston Gets Active. Uh, I went there and I met with the person over there, the coordinator, and I explained to her what's my interest. I told her I'm interested in looking at physical activity and mental health outcomes and physical health outcomes as well among um, newcomers. And she told me that there is one, that was in August, August, 2019, so a couple of months ago. And she told me that there is one group called the New Sisters of Canada group, which is basically a group of women. Uh, most of them, maybe 90% of them, are Syrian refugees who came here either in 2015, 2016, 2017, and some of them actually came here recently. Uh, the group happens once per week, and they meet to just discuss any issues happening. Sometimes they just meet to have some meals around, have little like socialization happening, um, but mostly the main the main aim of it is for them to practice language as uh, like uh, speaking uh, English as a second language because the coordinator is also an ESL teacher. Um, so at first uh, we went into some kind of like discussions uh, in English, and it was really interesting seeing them uh, try to uh, actually navigate the language barrier and like speak in. Uh, Speak, uh, speak in English, you know, um, and I know for I know for like for a reason that the, that these women, most of them are like are older in age, so it's really hard for them to learn a new language uh, and try and like communicate. But they're doing great, to be honest, better than I expected. Um, yeah, so I've been attending that group uh, for maybe six months uh, by now. And what happened is that the coordinator approached me and she was like, hey, let's design some kind of physical activity intervention that helps this woman actually get, get, get moving more and like uh, learn the benefits of physical activity. Because in some of the, some of the uh, meetings we had with them, uh, while we used to mention exercise, physical activity, sports, all of that, you feel like they don't recognize the benefits of it. And the only benefit they have in their mind is to lose weight which is understandable because like, you have to think about all of those challenges in addition to cultural barriers and all of that, which I'll be talking about later in the next, uh, next panel. <laughs> um, so yeah, so currently we're trying to design physical activity intervention for them. So that's part of the relationship reciprocity between the uh, community members. Uh, after that, hopefully, part of my evaluation of the intervention will be through traditional methods, such as uh, qualitative interviews and focus groups, in addition to photo voice, because I'm interested in looking, uh, in looking uh, on how, uh, how physical activity and community, uh, community belonging could be uh, elicited through, through photography and how that could make some kind of um, like sense of belonging and like social support among them, you know, because that's really crucial for these communities. Um, yeah, so um, I'm here right now, and uh, any input, any ideas are welcome, to be honest. Uh, there's nothing set in stone, and that's me. Thank you. Okay, hello. Um, 
All right, so I'm going to talk about something completely different. <laughs> um, but I was rereading the panel title uh, earlier this morning um, when I was preparing, and um, was like, oh yeah, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> like I, was, it was, I was at that point where you know I had gone into my own work, into my own work, and then I came back and reflected on what do I bring to this panel. Um, and so we're talking about engaging in communities inside and outside the academy. And so um, I'm going to talk about a, a bit of a different boundary, I think, um, and specifically coming from a music background. Um, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, as my title here says, rethinking plant music. So kind of like Zara, I'm in the, um, I guess, proposal stages. So um, what I'm going to present today is... Um, I guess a critique of one particular uh, method that people have used to make music with plants. Um, and then I'm going to, uh, I guess, maybe discuss some ways, like br very briefly discuss some ways um, that we might rethink that. So um, I'm going to play you a video. Uh, this is, so Data Garden is a company based out of Pittsburgh, I believe. Um, and they've created a few different, what they call data sonification systems, uh, which I'm going to get it. I'll unpack that a little bit um, for us in a minute. Um, so PlantWave is one of these systems. Um, and what PlantWave does, it'll actually be explained in the video. Uh, but this and similar systems to this are used by a lot of um, quote unquote creatives um, for making music with plants. Um, and so I'm just, let's, I'll, I'll play this and then um, kind of unpack a little bit of what I think is happening. Hopefully this will work. I know how it feels to go on a hike or be surrounded by nature. You come out more relaxed, refreshed, and energized. Our vision is to deliver the feeling of being immersed in a forest through music. We call this experience Plant Wave. With Plant Wave, your phone becomes a way for you to connect to nature rather than feeling separate from it. Plant Wave turns a plant's biorhythms into music. Just attach two sensors to a plant's leaves, and Plant Wave connects wirelessly to an iOS or Android device running our app. The app has instruments we built for plants to play. PlantWave detects slight electrical variations in a plant. These variations are graphed as a wave, which we translate into pitch messages that play instruments designed by our team. Other characteristics of the wave are translated into messages that change the textural qualities of those sounds. The result is a continuous stream of pleasing music that gives you a sonic window into the secret life of plants. Over the last seven years, we've received tremendous support from artists and musicians around the world after we brought to market MIDI Sprout, the world's first device that allowed creatives to make music with their plants. While that product was an amazing innovation, it was designed to be used with pro music equipment and required extra cabling. With PlantWave, you'll be able to wirelessly connect from your plant to your phone, making it easier than ever to tune into nature's song. Our current users report feeling more relaxed, connected, and inspired after listening to plants. They're listening in their home, garden, in nature. They're using plant music to enhance meditation, relaxation, and even focus. 
We have preliminary designs and working prototypes of Plant Wave complete, but we need your help to bring it to the world. Your support of this Kickstarter will allow us to finish development, get necessary certifications, and begin manufacturing. We hope you'll join us on this journey of deepening our connection to the planet, using music as a tool to heighten our senses of the vibrations that connect us all. So plant wave. Um, I've, I've already gone off script, of course. So I'm going to actually bring it back here a bit to my introduction. I want to give you a quote by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who some of you uh, might have read, um, who's a biologist and a Potawatomi scholar, uh, indigenous scholar living in upstate New York. Um, so she observed in a study of her third year general ecology students at SUNY ESF, that nearly every one of the 200 students said confidently that humans and nature are a bad mix. And students could not think of any beneficial relationships between people and the environment. And then she goes on to ask, how can we begin to move toward ecological and cultural sustainability if we cannot even imagine what the path feels like? Which is a really great question that's really guiding my own research. Um, so in my dis dissertation, what I'm doing is examining that path forward by attempting to intervene in plant-human relationships in the Kingston area. Um, so uh, moving on, um, I guess I'll go to the next slide here. Will that work? How do I go on to the next slide? Do I know how technology works? Great. Okay, so I'm going to present a, just a bunch of quotes that I've pulled out of this video. Um, so, um, our vision is to deliver the feeling of being immersed in a forest through music. Is the music being played here similar to the sound that you experience being in a forest? That's my first question. So let's think about that for a quick sec. Um, the music that you heard in the background of that video is very much the music that you get when you're using this instrument. Um, so some music philosophers might say that music is in fact in nature already. And so this has happened a few times. This is our Murray Schaefer, really famous Canadian scholar and composer. Um, and, um, and so I'm going to discuss R. Marie Schaefer. I'm going to discuss John Cage just a little bit and, and their different views on nature and music. Um, so first, um, Armory Schaefer is kind of one of the first people to really explore the idea of soundscape. So we know what a landscape is. This is the idea of a soundscape. Um, how does music work in, in the environment? How does sound work in the environment? And Murray Schaefer is um, an environmentalist as well, um, emphasizes the idea of noise pollution. Um, this work's coming out of the 19, like the mid 20th century. And so, um, and so he's really privileging kind of natural sounds over man-made sounds in his work. And specifically saying sound pollution is a problem, which is true, um, and actually a trendy research topic right now. Um, but in a way that human sounds are bad and are actually considered noise. So industrial sounds, urban sounds are, are, are almost demonized in his work in, some, in, in a lot of places. Um, and so um, I guess what happens um, in this work is that there's, as I said, a demonizing of certain human-non-human relationships um, that come out of cultural implications of the term nature itself. 
Um, so based on work by William Cronin and others, I would suggest that when we discuss nature, especially in colonial Euro-Western contexts, um, like this video is within, we are discussing cultural constructions. And often these relationships and human intervention, or sorry, and often constructions, one of these, I guess, constructions is of nature as this pristine or untouched um, sort of area that's away from people. It's not... Uh, influenced by people at all, which of course is quite problematic in a lot of ways. The one that I'll bring up right now is, was America untouched before colonial uh, settlers came here? Um, or were there human interventions here already? So there's a lot of erasure that happens when we consider nature this way. Um, so John Cage, um, a bit different, did I get ahead of myself? Oh, no. So uh, in this video, the point of this slide, in this video, there's a distinction between the home and the garden, which are domestic spaces, considered human spaces, and then nature, which is this other undefined everywhere else sort of space, um, which you can see in this quote. Like, there's, there's these three different places. Nature is not in the home. Nature is not in the garden, uh, interestingly, in this case. Uh, so moving on to John Cage... Um, in Cage's understanding, background noise is also music. So, um, for instance, I guess the most popular Cage score that gets talked about a lot in every, like, interdisciplinarily in scholarship is 4 minutes, 33 seconds, where there was no, you know, performers on stage for 4 minutes and 33 seconds. There's, and they don't play anything with their instrument, and the background noise um, is emphasized. So people coughing in the audience, any like the hum that's going on over here, all of these things that happen um, are part of the musical experience. And Cage is saying that music is ecology, music is nature, um, and, and sound and music comes from nature. Um, this is a score for a Cage piece that I really like called 49 Waltzes for the Five Burrows. Um, and so you'll see all these triangles over a map of the Five Burrows of New York. Um, and so what Cage does here is uses chance operations. So all the locations are chosen by chance. And the duration that you spend at each location is also chosen by chance. Um, some of them are like an hour. Some of them are like 30 seconds. Um, and uh, so to perform this piece, you would have to perform all 49 locations um, is kind of the idea. And what you're doing is you're going standing in these locations and experiencing uh, what... Schaefer would call the soundscape. So, um, of course, in the boroughs, um, Cage is definitely bringing urban sounds into this. So human sounds are now, for Cage, whereas they weren't for Schaefer, a part of the soundscape, and an important part of the soundscape that he doesn't ignore or, um, I guess, maybe demonize in the same way. Um, but um, there's also a critique of Cage here um, that uh, Benjamin Peacut takes up, saying that um, Cage mistakes chance for a way to make nature unmediated. So as a way for us to experience nature um, or music as nature without human intervention, uh, which of course is not true. Uh, you, we, we as humans cannot have an unmediated, a culturally unmediated experience of nature. 
So people like um, Warwick Fox and Val Plumwood have both argued that there's a need to recognize that our experience of nature are always mediated, using the term anthropogenic to describe how we cannot view nature outside of our culturally mediated understandings. Um, however, importantly, this is differentiated from anthropocentrism, which is more a term about humans valuing their own desires above those of other organisms. So just because we have these, we have to understand through a human lens everything else doesn't mean that we have to value the human above everything else. So that's an important, I think, distinction. Um, so moving on. Uh, here's another quote. The app has instruments we built for the plants to play that are designed by our team, and there's a process of translation here. So what does that mean, and how does that work? Um, let's talk about exactly what this instrument is for a minute. Um, so what's happening here is two different sensors are placed on two different parts of the plant, just like two different leaves. It reads electrical information from both those areas and measures the difference. That is translated into a graph of changes, and those are turned into pitches in the song or in the music that's happening here. Um, so kind of like if I have this, this is called a MIDI controller. So this is not the same thing as a keyboard. If I plug this in and I press a button, it's not going to make a sound itself. It has to go through a computer or something else. The computer is the one that adds sound to the data that's happening here. This is the same process that's happening with the plants. The plants aren't creating sound. The plants are creating a data set that's being translated by technology into a sound and into very specific sounds, which is also something that I'm going to be discussing here. So um, what's, what's known like with this instrument is how hard is the key pressed? Um, how long are you holding it? All of these things are taken into consideration, right? Um, so this process is called data sonification by Data Garden. Um, and so are we actually being immersed in a forest or are we in fact being immersed in a limited amount of data from one organism within which we would call a forest that's representing something much bigger is my big question. Um, Data often acts as a colonial tool, part of a system of colonialism that would seek to understand and tame, in this case, nature. And in this case, we don't even know what the data is showing. While using data under, to understand plants um, in that colonial way is problematic, in some ways it's equally problematic to collect data without knowing what it's showing us and then representing that, in this case, musically. For instance, there's a video by the Data Garden founder where he's showing differences between the music created by a damaged plant and a healthy plant um, without knowing what exactly the electrical signals are even implying in either plant or, or the other things that are happening here. Um, this is taken to an even greater extreme by one other person on YouTube who creates a video where she shows a genetically modified plant being taught to sing by a plant that was not genetically modified, and using this as a way to scientifically demonstrate, um, I guess, cultural conceptions of what plants should be. Should they be genetically modified? Should they not? Um, so 
here's another quote from this video. Continuous, uh, this is a continuous stream of pleasing music that gives you a sonic window into the secret life of plants. There's a lot to unpack here, um, especially for those of you with any um, knowledge of, of plant music in this and, and kind of like new age culture in the 60s, 70s. Um, so pleasing, pleasing to whom? Um, is, is having a sensor attached to your leaf a pleasing experience for a plant? I'm not sure. Um, that's obviously not being considered here. What's being considered is, is this pleasing to people? So humans here are using, continuing to use plants as a resource. In this case, a generative resource for uh, relaxation, meditation, um, escape into non-human nature, this kind of ambiguous um, sort of thing. Um, the other thing that I want to really highlight in this quote is Secret Life of Plants, which I don't know if any of you have read this. This was a book that came out in the 70s. So this is a reference to a book um, which uh, uses a lot of really controversial research. Uh, one of the experiments that I really want to highlight is uh, Dorothy Radelak's experiments are, are published in this book. She is, it, you might not know her name, but you'll probably, some of you will maybe know her work where she, um, she, I guess, um, played different types of music to plants to show what, which one would make them grow better. Um, and so her work's been criticized because it, of course, in the 60s, 70s shows that rock music is bad for plants, classical music is good for plants, which has actually now been shown to be much more a cultural sort of, um, it shows her own cultural biases. This is the era where rock music is not appreciated to the extent that it is now, is seen as unnatural, is seen as bad for youth. Um, so there's culture being, um, I guess, laid over that non-human nature again, even in those experiments. So the sounds crafted by Data Garden to play this plant data also importantly resemble sounds that come out of music created by New Age movement. So these are sounds that we often hear in yoga um, sessions, um, at like massage, uh, when we're getting massaged, when we're at spas. Um, these are the types of sounds that we hear and we are pres prescribing these onto plants. We don't know if the plant is stressed right now, but it's relaxing us, right? That's kind of the point that I guess I'm making here. Um, so, um, I would add, I'm not condemning, obviously I'm not condemning all of these interventions outright, uh, or maybe not obviously, which is why I'm saying it. Uh, I'm not condemning these interventions outright, um, but I am trying to rethink um, the way that we do make music with plants, because I think there is some important stuff that is done um, by, by people who are trying to uh, help us connect to nature. I think that is important work. Um, and I think that music can play a really important role in that. Otherwise, I wouldn't, this wouldn't be my project. Um, I think there is real value here. But to create relations like the ones desired by Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, from the quote at the beginning, I would say we need to move away from certain culturally mediated understandings of nature as out there, uh, pristine, um, and really intervene in people's everyday lives. What are our relationships with plants um, at home and in our everyday lives. Uh, because if we continue to separate nature out there from our inner, like our lives here, 
um, then I don't think we can really actually uh, make any steps towards the path forward that Kimmerer is looking for. Um, so the question of my work becomes, how can we use music as a way to show us that we are in nature and not apart from it? Um, so I'm going to show you one more quick video here um, and tell you a story uh, about this video. Um, but I'm going to play it first, I think, so you can get your own impression. So we can stop this here. Um, so I guess I, having put this at the end of the talk, you're having a different experience than the first time I showed that video in a classroom, which I think Elvira may have actually been there <laughs> for this experience. I went in planning to critique this video. Um, and at that point, I was like in that kind of enraged early state of research where you're just like, this is wrong. Everything's wrong. We need to change everything. And so I came in with this sort of agenda and I played this video for the class. And the reaction was, this is beautiful. This is amazing. This is like, uh, this person has a relationship with this plant through music. And it, it made me stop. And it was, and it really made me stop because oh, so this is actually doing for people what I'm saying it's not doing. Um, and and so I've, I'm at this place now where I'm interested, I guess, in that tension um, and thinking through that tension. Um, this is an instrument that came out before Plant Wave, but by the same people called Midi Sprout. Um, and so but it uses a lot of the same technology, right? And the sounds that are being prescribed onto the plant are similar. Um, and so there's just things to think through um, when designing something like this. And, and so I guess in my own project, one thing that's come up for me recently now when I start to watch that video is what about the air in that room and what about the breath of this performer? So not only the plant isn't only involved because of the sonic, um, I guess the sonic translation of electrical signals in its leaves. The plant is also creating, there's nature in this room. We're all breathing in plant waste. You could call it that if you would like. Um, and so plants mediate our environment. Um, so this is, this is maybe one way that I'm thinking through how can musical interventions, I guess, become more, I don't wanna say more useful, but um, maybe more ethical. Um, and, and I think part of it is just recognizing plant contributions um, in that way. Um, and I guess I would just end by saying that I have also recently experienced at a few conferences that got a little tense 
um, my own awareness of my own body in conference space and that I sometimes don't breathe when I'm in these spaces. Um, so I also think that uh, because, because of tension in my body, because of all of these things, and I think because conference spaces tend to like a lot of academic spaces to erase bodily experience. And, um, and so I'm interested now in thinking through how do we, how do we engage in, these, in this boundary between the academy and outside the academy um, and recognize non-human, I guess, forces, non-human beings um, that um, we might see as invading academic space, but have actually been here before us. Um, so I don't know. I guess I guess that's where I'll end this today. Yeah. We have about 20 minutes left, so maybe just kind of go straight into a discussion Q&A, open it up however you guys would like to. Um, yeah, really interesting to have um, these particular conversations in conversation with each other. I think it's really interesting to think about actually the parallels in some of the issues between what all three of you are talking about. So does anyone want to? I have a comment uh, for Anthony just because just the most recent one, um, and I appreciated all three of your presentations. Thank you very much. Um, I felt like, thank you for the presentation, it's great. I saw the first video, but like the whole discussion that you um, unfolded here has, um, has really engaged me uh, a lot. And I think what is interesting here is within this uh, video of that startup corporation, uh, company, obviously, uh, there's an element coming in that you could call com commodification. So when we first talked, when you first talked about um, the possibility of communicating with plants through technology, um, it has touched me in that class because it's actually amazing to make this, you know, audible and to understand these are beings. <coughs> there, there is a life there, and we can relate to it and so on. So that's the that's that very there's great potential in order to establish relationships through technology in that sense. But then if that is being taken in this approach to actually accumulate profit with it, because that's what the other video was about, um, I think that's probably the, pro the problem. Not necessarily to use technology to, to kind of establish this relationship, but then again to commodify it and it's almost like an extractivist approach and you said that so that the plants become again a resource a resource for accumulation processes. Yeah I think I think commodification plays a really big role. Um, I mean in the video it actually struck me when we were watching the video this time just like even how the people in the video are dressed um, all of these things I think and part of this, this is a Kickstarter video, right, which is important context, uh, because I think that Data Garden knows their audience and knows who will give them money as well. I think that's a big part of this. They understand that these are the communities that are interested in this. Um, and I'm not sure, I don't think commodification is necessarily the major difference. I think it is. I think I know exactly what you're saying, and I think I agree. Um, but I also have way, I also think there's a really big problem in the extraction of data from plants in general. And I think 
I think it is, I do know what you're saying, it is for the purpose of commodification, but I think just that process also, you could say there's a real relation to like anthropology and, and just, uh, you know, extraction of data and colonialism, I think. I think that's the other important element here that I would rather stress than commodification, but of course they're tied together and they're related um, very heavily. So I guess that's more the angle I've been focusing on. But yeah, thanks. That's a really good note. So I actually have a question uh, for Madison. With with your project, so one of the things that they highlighted during the keynote yesterday was sort of some of the 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 difficulties that are that exist within the academy, and, one, and sort of one of the prime prime, fac, prime factors when it comes to things like hiring boards or tenure committees is is publication and sort of I'm gonna put scare quotes on this, legitimate publications. So how, in, 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 in a project like this that is so focused on, on actually reaching, reaching, engaging with the public audience, how are you, that, how, how are you bridging that gap between not, not just bringing the academy outside, outside of the public audience, but actually still, I guess, giving a nod to the, to the legitimate sort of avenues of academic work? Great question, thank you for that. Um, we, as a research team, um, are still writing research, traditional research papers. Okay. So we're still we're still producing knowledge in that traditional form. Uh, so we just wrote one and submitted for uh, the use of qualitative data using digital methods. So that was one that we just uh, submitted. So we are still appeasing the academy <laughs> yeah. side of appeasing things. Appeasing is the <laughs> uh, So we're still we're definitely still engaging in that end because. I'm a young academic, oh, yeah. we know I need to stack up my rap sheet, you know, like I gotta, <laughs> I have to have that, that on there. Um, but it's also the other side of things as well, which I think we're still trying to figure out. Um, a hard part with YPAR methods is engaging the youth and still wanting to be a part of writing the boring research papers and making sure that it's not just the research team's voice that's being present in these research papers. So. Um, like engaging the youth as much as they want to be a part of the research paper, giving them that opportunity to write reflections, which we did, um, and put them into the research paper. So still engaging their voices um, is really important for us. And then there's cool stuff that you can do with research papers now. Like it doesn't have to be as boring as the 8,000 word count. Like. We still, we included um, the RQ codes for their personal reflections. So in the paper, if it gets published, uh, we'll have like the RQ code that you can go to and listen to the voice of the co-researcher. So it's not just boring reading. There's still, we're still trying to engage in a, uh, in a digital manner as much as we can. But yeah, we're, we actually, you're yeah, still yeah, in yeah. that, yeah. So we're still writing papers. <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, I've seen some uh, some similar studies. Uh, there is one uh, faculty member at our department. Uh, his name is Jeff Nasudo, and he gave us a lecture in one of our qualitative uh, data like analysis studies, whatever that's what that was called. Uh, he does like some kind of like uh, photo illustration and some like art based methodologies, and uh, he showed us some publication that had some pictures in it, but like at the same time it had some academic content. So. I feel like there is some kind of like movement right now towards like maybe non-conventional methods. Yeah. So hopefully, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. 
Yeah, I'd kind of love to hear your experience in your different disciplines, because I come from a discipline where it's still quite, let's use the word, traditional. And so what happens is if you're trying to do um, scholarly methods that are arts-based or combine sort of new digital media, especially, you end up just doing extra labor. Yeah. Because if you want to do it, they're like, great, that's awesome, but we have no way of evaluating that. Like, they don't have a structure to be like, yes, this can be your project. And so you just end up doing more. And then yeah. you still have to write the same amount of stuff, which I am a big believer in the rigor of the scholarly method and all of that. But I do think there's something interesting in this idea of co-production. So like co-production with youth, co-production of knowledge with newcomers, co-production of knowledge with plants maybe. <laughs> and how, like I'm curious in each of your disciplines, how have you been finding, trying to actually like thoroughly follow that thread? So co-production of knowledge, but then what does that mean? You know, you're producing thus different knowledge. And so then how you communicate that knowledge also has to be different, I think. And I think when you played the clip of um, the the person telling their story about how it's been difficult, it's not like super emotional, like it was beautiful. Can that be communicated in a scholarly essay, right? So maybe could you discuss a little bit about your experience of trying to bridge these gaps? Uh, I think it's so difficult. I think that's something that I, I struggle with every time I try to write a scholarly piece about this work is trying to negotiate those feelings of how can I take these stories or how can we as co-researchers and researchers and all the different stakeholders on the project take what we heard in the podcast and write them out. Um, it, it's very difficult. I, I think we really struggle with that. Uh, and then that co-production of knowledge is also challenging because what everyone deems as knowledge is very different. So like the co-researchers didn't want to write research papers. This is their project. So now like am I taking ownership of their project when I write a scholarly research paper on it? So these are all like really tough questions that we need to negotiate as stuck in this academy is trying to figure out like towing that line between uh, the co-production of knowledge. It's their knowledge. It's what they produced. What am I doing with it? Like am I benefiting from it now because I'm here talking to you about their project like these are all very difficult conversations and feelings that we uh, I think don't get talked about enough and really trying to negotiate these feelings that we have and working with the co-researchers before I presented before I made the presentation they saw it like I sent it to them was like hey is this cool if I do this if your names are on it is there anything that you want to add and like they all tell me yeah go ahead whatever like do your thing um, but it's, it's still important, I think, to have those conversations with them. And it's, yeah, it's tough. Like it's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Ultimately, I'm still trying to figure it all out. I think it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. I feel, I feel like you should do both. Uh, in my situation, I'm doing a partnership with a community uh, organization, so I should take the concerns into, into, into consideration. So uh, perhaps establish, establishing some kind of input for them or something in their format, you know, and then on my side, it's going to be something like more academic, uh, although I, I'd like to include something artistic as well, uh, so I don't know, like at this point, I'm just like browsing ideas, and hopefully that would lead somewhere, you know. Can I follow up um, with a question for you, because you use photo voice, that would suggest to also include that in your um, work, obviously. So you would use this 
let's say, as images that would illustrate the writing, or could you see it as an animation even? Uh, so basically what happens in Photo Voice that you give uh, participants cameras, or they, they can use their own cameras, and they take whatever pictures they want, like any picture. And after that, uh, what happens, like sort of, uh, it can be a focus group discussion or just a circle of discussion, and then each one would uh, basically explain how, uh, explain what's, what's their interpretation of that photo and how that could actually relate to the main idea. So I think it's easier than podcast in terms of, in terms of writing it academically, because you can basically include a picture and then write down the explanation of it. But in terms of podcast, how would you actually, like, Include an audio there, you know, it's harder. Yeah. Yeah. Other than just transcribing it, which yeah. is then the dominant use of language of English. Mm -hmm. and exactly. Yeah, so, so the imitation of language right there is not there. Yeah. Exactly. That's difficult. Yeah. One of the things that struck me about uh, your paper in Madison was the idea of. Um, just because this is a loaded term for me in past research projects, um, but that, that idea of authenticity that I find. Um, I actually wonder about translation processes in in both of these, in, in all of our work, I think, <laughs> like generally. But, um, you know, like, how do you translate, you know, there's kind of like, I was also like kind of like um, emotionally invested in that story and like, um, that, like when the young um, people were actually telling their stories about hardships and stuff like that. Um, and, and then the idea of having to edit it or having to, you know, and, and you know, in, I didn't actually find any of that hard to follow. Like, I think there's like, a, I think it was actually really, really clearly stated. And um, so I wonder about this idea of authenticity. What is authenticity? What is like, um, because I think that's a, a term used by power a lot. And I, I think it's something to really consider. And, it's definitely something that's central to my to answer the uh, original question I definitely like have in my master's program um, I did I didn't know what research creation was but that's what I was doing um, where I like was doing music analysis through a lip-sync performance so I like designed costumes I made props I found space I produced and directed for performers uh, and then I also had to write a 180 page document at the end of it. So like you are doing like twice the amount of work. Like by the end of it, I basically, I think I probably did a PhD dissertation amount of work in my master's just be, to try to do this. Fortunately, I found cultural studies, which is the program that I'm currently in where you're, you don't have to produce um, the traditional document. You can do research creation as part of your dissertation. So hopefully that will kind of minimize the work. However, uh, there's just always, in photo voice, you have, you're looking at the photo, you produce the photo, but it's conversation, so it becomes textualized. Um, so there's still like signification that happens um, in, those, in that sort of process, textual sort of signification um, that's happening in the end, right? And it's still, you can still easily, it's already been textualized, so you've already taken the the photo, the like quote-unquote art thing, and then you've you've translated it into text already. Um, in the podcast, it does start as text as well, but it's like spoken, right? Yeah, okay. And maybe in both of these cases, it's spoken. So it's just interesting to think about, you know, all of these layers of translation that are happening and um, and how that kind of.
kind of affects how you disseminate your, your work um, and how you can't actually ever control how people are going to read or consume whatever you put out there anyway. Yeah. You know, like how meaning is always going to be emergent for whoever is reading whatever, wherever. So. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm also um, in cultural studies with the research creation project, so I'm using art for my research, or include art or creative practice. And that's exactly, I think, what you said, Anthony, that art actually um, is a part of the research because it delivers an aesthetic experience. So it's not about talking about it necessarily and then mediating it, or what you call contextualizing it, but letting it speak for itself as a, as a, as a voice. So photo voice in this kind of qualitative research methodology still serves a kind of a traditional way of research, which is great. I, I love it. It's great. But I just want to point out the, that photo voice, for example, in a research creation project would maybe even stand alone without the, you know, you would look at the photo as a recipient and the interpretation is very open. I guess that's a little bit of a difference. Yeah, I think part of it is, is sort of admitting to ourselves, like I like to use the word inquiry because I work in literature. I like inquiry over research, but a lot of what you're doing mm -hmm. it has is really actually research. But inquiry is basically involves the idea that what you're doing, what how you are researching is the research as well, right? Mm -hmm. So like the discussion you have is the research. The research isn't just when you write it, turn it into the paper. And so much of scholarly method often tries to strip stuff like that, right? To make some kind of like neutral knowledge has come out of this. But as soon as you start doing participatory or arts-based stuff, you can't make those kinds of claims of like clean neutrality anymore, which I think is like exactly the thing that the Academy needs, because obviously all of that's an illusion anyway. <laughs> Not obviously, I, I think so, and lots of people think so. So I think the, the story of your research, so like your experience of going to those weekly meetings and talking to those women and eating food with them, that is the research and that feeling, that embodied experience. Like, how do we, how do you communicate that? Because that is it. And also what you write about is it. But they both are it, you know what I mean? And also recognizing, because it also goes the other way, like, in the text, there's always traces of the body as well, right? Like, you can, is the other way to think about this? Mm -hmm. Because you're right, like, the text can be seen as sort of a neutral ground where you've written something, but also like you can choose to look at a text as embodied. When you're sitting and writing at your computer, your body's still there. Your brain doesn't work without your body. Those things aren't separate. So you're always, there's always uh, an experience of like being an animate being, right? Like um, one of my favorite quotes uh, right now by a scholar, is, she's named Maxine Sheets Johnstone. And she says that embodiment uh, as a term is a lexical band-aid for um, the Cartesian, oh, put over the Cartesian, like, wound. Because it's, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're an animate being always, you're always, you know, there's just no separation. And so, like, if I'm sitting at my computer writing, my body's just as much a part of that work as it is being in a room with newcomers and doing a podcast or doing an arts-based intervention. But how do we think more and be more cognizant about the body when we're doing the writing is maybe an important thing and how does the body come into that? Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I just want to add that on the topic of body and research and art, in your slideshow, do you remember the image where it looked like someone's body had been traced yeah. and there was art within mm -hmm. it? Is that an explicit technique that you use, or is that something that someone just put uh, it off the cuff? That's just an explanation <coughs> of some people who choose to like draw their experiences in terms of like, I think it was a study about a heart disease and how they actually uh, elicited that in Okay, Be yeah. yeah, the only reason I ask is because actually my supervisor for my masters has developed a technique that looks just like that, where people actually lie on the ground and you trace, someone traces your body, then you can tell like an autobiography by decorating your body with using multimedia, like whatever, mixed media. Um, she has published on it, she calls it the body of work. And if you're interested in all of it, yeah, sure. okay, well, there you go. Um, I really want to keep this conversation going during our break. <laughs> um, we have to close this up. That's it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Music